You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. This morning, it is my delight and pleasure to have one of my closest friends in the ministry, Ed Moore, sharing God's word with you this morning. Ed and his wife, Anna, who joined us in the choir today. It wasn't the choir amazing this morning. Amen. But they have been in a church in Queens, New York City, North Shore Baptist Church, part of the SBC since July of 1992. So they've been serving there 31 years. Queens is the most diverse county in the world. And their church looks like the county. I I spoke there at a men's retreat a few years ago. There were 63 men there from 24 nations. And Ed, apart from Al Jackson, is the most effective and fruitful pastor I've ever been exposed to. And they are a church planning church, and they are a church revitalizing church. They send out their best to revitalize churches throughout New York City, grounding their ministry in expository preaching and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I could say a whole lot about Ed, but I don't want to take up his time. But Ed, I love you, and I am honored for you to be in our pulpit today. Ed Moore. My cousin died last year. It's okay. He lived a full life. About two months before he died, he told me a story about our aunt, my mother's sister, his father's sister. The story that he told goes back to 1955 when he was a student at the Dubois Business College in the little town that I grew up in, Dubois, Pennsylvania. And he was walking down the street one day, and as he was back in the days when there would not have been any air conditioning, the door to a bar was open, and he heard a woman inside who was cackling, raising a fuss, arguing, being loud, being boisterous. As he walked by and looked in, he saw that the person in the bar was our aunt. He told me that story about two months before he himself died. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that we have the opportunity to open the Bible and look at the Bible for every time that we do that, we are hearing absolute truth. And now, Lord, as I proclaim that truth today, I pray that you would give me joy in my heart. I pray that I would be uh, interested in what I myself am saying, and I pray that the people will be interested in what I am saying. I pray that I will deliver this message today with joy and, and with enthusiasm, and Lord, I pray that I will have compassion for my hearers. Most of all, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts and our lives, opening the word to us and causing us to see truth and causing us to see Christ. And so, Lord, as I present Christ today, I pray that I would be filled with your Holy Spirit, and, Lord, that the hearers would be filled with your Holy Spirit as they listen to your truth. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank your pastor for inviting me to come. 
It was in a Bible conference about a year ago where I was addressing a group of pastors and I was talking about your pastor, Brian Payne, and I addressed that group and I told them that if Brian Payne were to walk into the room, the best that any of them could hope for would be to be the second best preacher in the room. Uh, I respect you for many reasons. Your, your preaching, also the fact that you taught my son how to preach at Boyce College 11 years ago, but most of all, I respect you as a pastor because for five years, every Sunday morning on his way to church, he picked up a widow in Louisville, Kentucky and gave her a ride to Fisherville Baptist Church Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So for many reasons, I respect you, but not only are you one who, who preaches the word of God, but you live the word of God. Uh, and I give God thanks for you. Today, I want to address the topic of restoration. Allow me to illustrate this. A while back, I went in to get a haircut. Before I got the haircut, I spoke to my barber, who does not speak much English, and I said, listen, I said, you can cut some of it, but I want you to leave some of it there because I want to move it around so as to give the illusion that I actually have some hair. Now, why, why, do I, why did I do that? Well, I did that because, I, I, like your song leader, Adam, I'm not a quitter, okay? I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to give the illusion that I've got some hair. And so, I kid you not, I am here in the barber chair. He is behind me, and he starts to cut my hair, and through the door walks a friend of his who speaks his language, and the friend sits directly behind him. So get the picture. I'm in the barber chair. I'm watching what is happening. He is standing behind me. He is cutting my hair, and he turns around, and he has a conversation with his friend, not looking at my head while he's cutting my hair. I'm watching it happen, and when he's finished, I say to myself, suddenly, I'm not half the man I used to be. <laughs> what did I need? I needed restoration. I needed things to go back the way they were. We live in a fallen world where restoration is needed. Entropy has an undefeated record. Fairy tale endings are reserved for fairy tales. All the king's horses and all the king's men are busy. If you can replace a hip, or if you can replace a fender, if you can replace a roof, you're going to make a very good living. Orthodontists do not work at minimum wage. Why? Because we live in a fallen world where things need to be restored. And not only is it in our physical universe, but also in our hearts. We have marriages that crumble. Uh, inside, we fall apart emotionally. Maybe you have a struggle knowing how the rent is going to be paid next month. We live in a fallen world, or as Job put it, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And the place where we need restoration the most is the place where we feel it the least, and that is in our relationship with God. I mean, that is why Christ came. It was to bring us to God, to restore our relationship with God. Christ suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Why did he have to do that? Because we are a fallen people where we need restoration. Well, I would like to illustrate our need for restoration and how the gospel addresses that 
from the Bible, from the book of 2 Kings. Today, we're going to be looking at the first six verses of 2 Kings chapter 8. And so if you would, please turn in your copy of the scripture to that. We will go through it verse by verse, and I will kind of give a running commentary as we go. Hear the word of the Lord, 2 Kings chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, Elisha, let's just stop right there. Who was Elisha? He was the one that came after Elijah. He was the most prolific miracle worker in all the Bible, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had raised to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn or temporarily travel wherever you can. Why? Well, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose, did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. The woman that is being referred to here is known as the Shunammite woman. We were introduced to her, first of all, back in 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, she was a friendly and a benevolent woman. She knew that the prophet Elisha would be coming through that territory frequently. And so she said to her husband, why don't we take some of our money and build a room on the top of our house so that when Elisha comes through, he will have a place to sleep. She did that for him. He was grateful. He said to the woman, is there anything that I can do for you? The woman said, I live among my people. I have everything that I need. I don't need anything at all. However, Elisha's servant, a man by the name of Gehazi, said, I know what the woman needs. She's got a few miles on her, and her husband is already old, and they don't have any children. They would really like to have a child. And so Elisha says to her, next year at this time, you're going to have a child. Fade in, fade out. A year later, the little boy is born. One day, when he is, has grown up, and he's, we're not real sure how old he is, but he's old enough to go out in the field with his father, he goes out in the field with his father, and he begins to complain of a headache. He goes back in the house, he gets on his mother's lap, and there in her arms, he dies. What does the woman do? She picks up her son. She walks up the steps into Elisha's bedroom. She lays the little boy on the bed, and she travels 16 miles to see Elisha, who was at Mount Carmel at the time. Uh, when she arrives, she tells Elisha of the child's death. Elisha at this time probably is not terribly fleet of foot. And so he says to his servant Gehazi, take my staff, go back, go into the bedroom and lay the staff across the boy's face. Don't talk to anybody, just do that as fast as you can. Gehazi does that, the boy does not come to life. Elisha and the woman slowly make their way from Mount Carmel back to Shunem. They go up into the upper room, and in what is arguably the most unusual prayer meeting in all the Bible, Elisha raises the boy to life, and he is presented back to his mother. That is the woman that is being referred to here. Now, fade in, fade out, several years later, God has revealed to the prophet that there's going to be a famine the famine is going to be severe. It is going to last for seven years. Uh, when you consider that back in 1 Kings chapter 17, there was a famine during the days of Elijah, which lasted three and a half years and people were dying, you would not be able to survive a seven-year 
famine, and this came upon the people of God because they were breaking the covenant of God. God promised that if you break my covenant, I will stop the rain from falling. Things will stop growing. You will stop eating. And so the covenant people of God have sinned so severely that God has called for a seven-year drought. Elisha, in a kindness to this woman, says, you've got to get out of Dodge. Go anywhere you can, but you can't stay here. And so for seven years, she goes into the land of the Philistines. What happens at the end of this drought? Well, begin reading, please, with me in verse 3. And at the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Apparently, while she was gone, the government had confiscated her property Nothing ever changes. And she comes back and she says to the king, I I, I want my house back. Now, when we get to verse 4, I can read the English words, I understand them. But the thing that I cannot explain is that this is one of the most bizarre verses in all the Bible. I do not know why this happened. This is a very strange event. It says, Now, the king, uh, let's just stop right there. The king was King Jehoram. He was the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel, and the apple has not fallen far from the tree. He is a wicked king. He is a godless king. The king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. This is one of the most unusual verses in all of the Bible. For some reason, one day, this wicked king decides to speak to the now defrocked clergyman, Gehazi, who used to be the assistant of Elisha, but is no longer the assistant of Elisha because now he is out of the ministry. Why? Because he tried to extort money from the Syrian general Naaman, And now he is a leper and will be a leper for the rest of his life. And one day the king just decides to get up and to ask Elisha's former assistant, could you please tell me all of the great things that the Lord has done through Elisha's miracle working power? It is bizarre on many levels. First of all, it is bizarre because this king himself on multiple occasions had witnessed some of those miracles. And it is also bizarre because the king himself on multiple occasions had tried to kill Elisha. But one day, this wicked king just gets up and he wants to hear the wonderful things that God has done through the miracle working power of Elisha. That is verse four. Verse five is where restoration begins. And while, W-H-I-L-E, the entire passage hinges on this one word, while, at the same time, simultaneously, while, W-H-I-L-E, while, and while he, That is, Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life. That is the story which I just told you about from 2 Kings chapter 4, the raising of the the son of the Shunammite woman. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, and anytime you see behold in Scripture, it means to try to paint in your mind's eye, try to envision, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealed to the king. At the same time that he was talking about the woman, the woman shows up. The woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, 
My Lord, O King, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Now, obviously, the king would be a little bit skeptical, thinking that perhaps this would be choreographed, and so he needs this to be corroborated. And he says in verse 6, And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore, there's our word for the day, restoration, restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. In other words, not only does she get her house back, not only does she get her land back, but everything that would have grown on that land during the time that she was gone, I want all of that restored to her. That is a very interesting story. It's a story of restoration which comes to this woman. Now, we do not know the setting. We do not know how it happened. We don't know if they were inside, if they were outside. We would guess that probably Gehazi was not in close proximity to the king, seeing as how he was a leper at the time. But if you can paint in your mind's eye the scenario, the king wakes up one day and he says, to Gehazi, I want you to tell me everything that has happened. As he is talking about the woman, the woman at that time walks in. Uh, try to envision it in this way. So King, you want me to tell you everything that has happened through the miracle working power of Elisha. Well, where do I begin? I guess I could go back to the beginning when he was given the mantle from Elijah. They had crossed over the Jordan River, and when the mantle fell, it fell on Elisha. And then there goes Elijah, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. He takes the mantle, and he uses it to part the Jordan River, and he walks across on dry ground. When he gets to the other side, he's in Jericho. The water is bitter. He throws salt in the water, and the water becomes sweet. From there, he makes his way on to Bethel. As he's on the way to Bethel, there are 42 young people who make fun of him before, because he is bald, and two she-bears come out of the woods and kill all of those young people. King, I, I don't even know where to begin to tell you all of the things that had happened. There was one time when we had borrowed an axe head. It fell into the river. He waves a stick over it. And I'm telling you, I saw it with my own eyes. It floated. King, there was another time. Oh, you yourself were there, King. Remember when we went on that military expedition and we were out there and we were going to die of thirst and without rain and without a river, Elisha prays and water is produced. The water in appearance to our enemies appears to be blood. We are saved from thirst and we defeat our enemies. You remember that. You remember the other occasion when he blinded an entire army. And we were rescued from our enemies at that time. You remember the other time when there was this stew. People were eating it. It was poison. They were dying. And he throws some flour in the stew. And the stew becomes edible. Uh, the, there was another occasion, King. The reason why I am a leper today. When he healed the leper, Naaman, the Syrian general. King, there were so many miracles. I can't even tell you all of them. But by far, the greatest miracle that he ever performed is there was this boy. And I'm telling you, King, I was in the room with this boy alone. He wasn't sick, he wasn't wounded, he wasn't injured, he was dead. He was blue, he was cold, he was purple, he was dead. And Elisha walked in and all of a sudden prayed for this boy and this boy came back to life. I'm telling you, King, it was the most amazing thing that I have ever... That's him. 
W-H-I-L-E, while he was talking about the boy, the boy and his mother walk in. And because of that, after the king spoke to them, what followed was she received total restoration. What can we gather from this story? We know what happened, but how did it come about? Because the same God who ordains the means ordains the ends by which the means will be accomplished. What were the means that God used in order to bring restoration to this woman? Well, they all begin with the letter P, and I have three of them. First of all, please consider from this story that our glorious message of restoration is always controlled by the design of divine providence. Providence. What is providence? Well, simply put, providence is the fact that God is in absolute control of everything that happens, from the movement of the largest planet down to the movement of the smallest molecule and everything in between, that God is sovereign over all, that he has the whole world in his hands, that he has a lock on everything, L-O-C-K, that he limits, he orders, he controls and knows everything. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this, that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. The abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Article 4, puts it this way, God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds and directs and governs all creatures and all events, end quote, and well said. God is in control of everything. I mean, what are the mathematical chances that at the same time that he would be talking about this boy and that that boy and his mother would be walking into the room? You see, if there is such a thing as providence and God is the one who is in control, well, there are ramifications for this. The first one is that there is no such thing as luck. For if luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. You will hear young people sometimes use the expression, well, that was so random. Well, I understand what they mean, but in actuality, if there is a God, then nothing is random. Everything is by design. Nothing is left to chance. Everything is preordained. Everything is by design. And this is the doctrine of providence. I mean, let's do the math. What are the mathematical chances that after seven years, that is approximately 2,550 days, that on the exact day, at the exact hour, at the exact moment, when Gehazi was telling the story of the Shunammite woman and her son, that they would walk into the presence of the king? What is the math? You Auburn students who are majoring in math, what is the mathematical probability of that happening? Is it one in a hundred? Or is it more like one in a million, or one in a billion. So you're saying there's a chance. There's no mathematical probability that this would happen, but if God is the one that is directing traffic, then the chances are 100%. And if God is not directing traffic, then the, the chances are zero. But in this case, and in every case, God is the one that is directing traffic, and that is a friend to our restoration. 
You'll also hear people say sometimes when something will happen which is good and unusual, uh, they will say, oh, that was such a God thing. Well, I don't want to argue with them because indeed, whatever happens that is good, every good and gift, perfect gift is from above, it is a God thing. My question to you would be this. Can you point to one thing that is not a God thing? All things, by definition, are God things because God controls all things. So the doctrine of providence is our friend, meaning that you are where you are, not just generally speaking in life, but I mean like right now, where you are, sitting right where you are, you are there by divine providence. And God is the one that has put you there. Let me illustrate how this happened one time with a friend of mine. I had a friend who was an unbeliever and he had several things going against him. Uh, first of all, he was born into a Jewish family who did not believe in Jesus Christ. He came from a scientific background and so he was an atheist. Also, he was a heroin addict and he was homeless. Uh, he would get a house to stay in every once in a while. He lived in a different state from me, but we would stay in touch with one another. We were very good friends with one another. I would invite him to go to church with me, and I was only ever able to get him to go to church with me once. Didn't seem to impact him in any way. One day, as a homeless man, he is out, strung out on heroin, walking the streets, and he is hit by a car, and he's injured very badly. And so he goes into the hospital, now, I didn't hear from him for several weeks, and I didn't know why I had not heard from him. And as it turns out, he goes into the hospital. When he goes into the hospital, his clothing is so filthy, they have to throw it away. And for about six to eight weeks, he is in the hospital. First of all, uh, the wounds, which he had from being hit by the car, being nursed. Secondly, he is being weaned off of heroin. As he is there, he is being cared for by an unbelieving but yet very kind and compassionate nurse. She cares for him and she realizes when he is about to be dismissed from the hospital to the rehab center that he doesn't have anything to wear. So what does she do? She goes to one of her mother's friends and says, the man is about this size, you're about his size, can you give him some clothes? They give him clothes, he leaves the hospital, he goes to the rehab center. At the rehab center, he calls me and he says, you're not gonna believe where I've been for the last two months. And he begins to talk about his story. As providence, remember that's our word, providence, which brings about restoration, providence, as providence would have it, he happens to be 40 miles away from this hospital, but now in a town, in a rehab center, where I know several people who are Christians. And so I begin a group text to about 10 Christians, and I say, listen, there's a man in this rehab center. He needs the Lord. Here is his story. A few minutes later, a woman chimes in to the group text and says, I know who this man is. My daughter is a nurse in a hospital about 40 miles away, and for the last two months, she has been taking care of him. She loves this man. She has compassion on him. Uh, fast forward in the story. That nurse later becomes a Christian, but that's not part of this story. Anyway, in this story, in this story, another man chimes into the text whose name is Chris. Chris happens to be the man that gave up his clothes for this man to wear, and he's texting, and he says, 
I'm on my way to the rehab center right now. I don't know this man. I don't know what he looks like. I'm just gonna go in and look for the guy who's wearing my clothes. <laughs> True story. These 10 friends of mine maniacally evangelized this man, led him to Christ, and when he later gave his testimony, he said, the one thing that I could not get out of my mind was, what were the mathematical probabilities that your friends would be in this town and that that nurse would be taking care of me and that the man who gave me my clothes was the man that you asked to come and bring me the word of God? There has to be a God. Mathematically, it wouldn't work out otherwise. Providence is a friend to restoration. And so you might be asking yourself, what is God doing and why is he doing it? And I can give you the answer to that. I don't know. But I know the one who does know. And he does cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. Everything is by design. Providence is a friend to restoration. Point number two. Our glorious message of restoration is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. That is our P word, pain. What was the greatest pain that the Shunammite woman ever knew? Well, it was the fact that her son died. I, I don't even want to think about it for very long. I, I don't want to meditate on it. But, but, but her pain was exacerbated by the fact that the little boy was fine when he woke up that morning. And so this was not only pain, but it was the shock that accompanied the pain that he went out into the field healthy and he came back a few hours later and he was dead. And so now can you imagine the pain that she felt as she walked from Shunem to Carmel with a dead son lying on the bed in Elisha's apartment? The pain that she felt even as she walked back to Shunem, not knowing what would happen to her son. But if you play this thing out, and let's play this thing out, if the son had never been dead, then he never would have come back to life. And if the woman had come to appeal to the king for her land and her property, if she had even gotten an audience with the king, the king would have said to her, who are you? Get in line. We just had a seven-year famine, but because she had her son who had been dead but was now alive and he could not come back to life had he not died, that pain was a necessary ingredient in her restoration. I am sure that as she was walking to Mount Carmel that day, she did not say to herself, I just know that something good is going to come out of this. She would have had no way of imagining that that very thing is what would have been used years and years later in order to bring about her restoration. So I don't want to be unsympathetic right now as to what is going on in your life. The pain that you are going through. Maybe even on your way to church this morning, you and your spouse spoke about divorce. Maybe you have an unbelieving son or daughter Maybe you've got this nebulous thing going on in your heart and your mind called depression. I understand it. I've gone through it three times myself. It's worse than any physical ailment in the world. And maybe you are being discouraged by 
physical limitations or sickness, or maybe it's finances, or, 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 or maybe it's just circumstances or something else. Pain is real. And I, I don't want to downplay that in any way. But I also want to let you know that pain is not random. And it is used by God to bring glory to himself and to bring about ultimately our good. Let's consider, please, the story of Joseph. If Joseph doesn't get the coat of many colors, then he's not the favorite of Jacob. If he's not the favorite, then his brothers don't hate him. If his brothers don't hate him, then he isn't sold into slavery. If he's not sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. He doesn't meet Potiphar. He doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get falsely accused of rape. And if he doesn't get falsely accused of rape, he doesn't go to jail. And if he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. And if he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream. And if he doesn't interpret the cupbearer's dream, well, then the cupbearer doesn't know that he can interpret dreams. And when Pharaoh has the big dream, the important dream about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, Egypt would have squandered everything during the seven years of plenty. And if they had done that, there would have been no food in that region. And if there was no food in that region, then everybody in his family would have died. And if everybody in his family died, then his brother Judah would have died. And if his brother Judah died, then there would be no lion of the tribe of Judah who would be Jesus Christ. And if there was no Jesus Christ, well, guess what? You're going to hell and so am I. But as it stands... All of those ingredients were put together, many of which were painful, but it ultimately led to your salvation and mine. Now, if we put blinders on any subsection of Joseph's life, I mean, here he is in jail for two years, forgotten, for a crime that he did not commit, in a place which he never asked to be, and he asks the question, Lord, what are you doing? It would have made no sense. However, when you get into your Romans 828 helicopter and lift off, and you see, ah, he's working all things together for the good of those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose, you would see that pain was a necessary ingredient in bringing about ultimate good. So, your pain, I'm sympathetic toward it, but please never view it as random or unnecessary. It is not only meaningful, but ultimately it will be used to bring about good. And Joseph recognized this at the end of his life when his brothers come to him begging for their lives, and he says, guys, you don't understand. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good as it is this day to save many people alive. And he didn't even know what he was talking about to the full extent at that time because that ultimately was pointing to Christ. Pain. What was the greatest pain that the world has ever known? It was on Calvary when the precious Son of God was nailed to a cross. Before they nailed him to a cross, they beat him mercilessly. Isaiah says that his visage was marred more than any man, meaning that when they got done beating him, he didn't even look like a human being. There he hangs, naked and in shame, before the people. He bore in his body our sins upon the tree, but not only was it the agony of the flogging and the crown of thorns and the nails in his hands and his feet, but the real pain... It was meted out upon the Son of God that day was from me and from you. Christ died for our sins. 
And so the spotless lamb of God who has never committed any sin, now when he is upon the cross, who has become now a curse for us, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree, Jesus is as vile and as wretched as any child molester or rapist that has ever lived. He never committed a sin, but Martin Luther rightly said he was the greatest sinner that ever lived. Why? Because he took our sins. But the pain doesn't stop there. The ultimate pain is when God the Father, who is holy, who must punish sin, and he must punish sin with death, rolled up his sleeve and for six hours hammered his son to death upon the cross. That was the pain. The pain that caused Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Him bearing the wrath of God, him propitiating the wrath of God, him becoming an atoning sacrifice at the hands of Almighty God. We cannot even begin to fathom that pain, but that pain is our salvation. Our salvation is not just about pain. Our salvation is pain. Restoration ultimately is brought about by pain. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Point number three and that is our glorious message of salvation and restoration is always accompanied with a demonstration of divine power, power, specifically the power of a risen son. You see, the reason why King Jehoram was willing to restore her property was not because of any meritorious act which she herself had performed. For if she had walked in before the king and he said, who are you and why should I help you? If she had said, because I'm the one who built a room on the top of my house for the prophet, he would have been unimpressed. The only reason that he was impressed and gave her restoration is because he was not looking at her. He was looking at one who was standing beside her one who was a risen son. That's where restoration ultimately comes from. It is from the power of a risen son. Please follow my argument in closing from the lesser to the greater objectively and then subjectively. Uh, objectively, if a wicked king, hearing the testimony of a leprous, deflocked, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he did not know based upon a boy who was dead but was now alive, but a boy who would eventually die and die permanently, how much more, brothers and sisters, will a loving, good, intentional, eternal God not grant ultimate restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect, eternal son standing by our side, proof of our justification, a son who was dead, but a son who will be alive forevermore. You see, what I do not want in the judgment is to stand before God and for him to look at me. For if he does, I will be eternally damned. However, what I do want at the judgment and what I will have at the judgment is one standing beside me who is a risen son. And God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. All of the power that we have 
to be ultimately restored is in the hands of a risen son. And this is why Paul will preach, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of a risen son. That is what has happened objectively. But now may I speak to the power of a risen son subjectively. In 1955, my cousin walks past that bar. He looks in and he hears my aunt cackling, arguing, making noise, acting like the town drunk which she was. That is 1955. In 1959, my aunt falls down a flight of stairs and she breaks her back. As she is in the hospital bed, she cries out to God and she says, have mercy upon me. And God healed her and God saved her. That's 1959. As soon as she got out of the hospital, she went to church that next Wednesday night, our tiny little Christian and Missionary Alliance church in Dubois, Pennsylvania. And as was the custom in those days, you would have a testimony time during the prayer meeting, and in that small gathering of believers, the pastor asked the question, does anybody have a word of testimony or something that they would like to share about their love for the Lord? And my aunt sat there and said nothing. She walked home that night, and she got into her bedroom, and she got down on the floor, and she started to weep, and she began to cry. And she said, oh God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. If you ever give me an opportunity to go back to that church, I will always speak of your goodness and your kindness because you've raised me to life. That's 1959. I'm not born until 1961. I was raised in that church and I'm trying to be humorous, but I'm also being accurate when I say that for the entirety of my life on Wednesday nights, which this happened every Wednesday night, when the pastor would say, does anyone want to give a word of testimony about their love for the Lord? What he meant in actuality was, would anybody like to go second? Because <laughs> Mrs. Schaefer will be the first one up for before he had finished saying that, she would spring to her feet and with joy and enthusiasm, she would speak about the power of a risen son, how her life had been changed and her love for Jesus Christ. You see, objectively, he was raised for our justification. So before the throne of God above, you have a risen Christ who has paid for your sins and, and, and is risen. And that is your objective standing before God. But there is also a subjective element to this in that that boy was dead and then he came back to life and this woman experienced joy in her life having that son brought back to her and you 
If you have been born again, you did not just check off the boxes of walking the aisle or praying the sinner's prayer or being baptized, but what happened in actuality is that you were dead and you were on your way to hell and he came to you and he rescued you and he breathed life into you. You were just making your way through life. You wanted nothing to do with him, but he came and he got you and you were dead and he brought you to life. And that subjective power of a risen son needs to be evident in your life. And so if I ask you the question today, are you alive? Yes, I have joined this church. That's not what I'm asking you. Are you alive? Yes, my Sunday school teacher told me that if I pray this prayer, I will be saved. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm saying, has the power of the risen son gripped you to the point where old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new? And I'm fearful today in a crowd this size, there might be someone who has checked all the boxes religiously, but you have not been brought to life. Let me tell you, the power of a resurrected son will bring evidence has that evidence been seen in your life? Restoration comes through providence, it comes through pain, and it comes through the power of a risen son. May we look to that risen son and him alone for our total and complete restoration. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have brought us together today. Lord, we thank you that you have restored us. Lord, we believe in the power of the gospel. And now, Lord, I would ask in Jesus' name that if there is anybody here today who needs to be genuinely brought to life, I pray that by this gospel, Lord, that you would do that. Lord, help us to have thankful hearts for the restoration that you have worked in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.